Happy Easter! Special day for big reasons like Jesus raised from the dead. Little reasons like it's one of the days I actually wear a tie to preach in. So, I like Easter. I like wearing I like looking at myself in the mirror when I got a tie on. I feel like I look pretty good. We're glad that you're here today. If you're a visitor, you're so welcome. Uh, members as well. It's just good to be together, especially on Easter. You can follow along this morning in the bulletin. There's a sermon outline. We talk about the benefit of the doubt today. Also, Uversion, a free app for your tablet or your mobile device. Free. It's great. Get on there, and under events, you can find Preston Crest, and you can follow along in there as well. And wherever you are at on that uh, continuum of belief, disbelief, we're glad that you are here. Some of you today are way over here. I mean, you believe 100% in the Easter story, the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, you believe so much, you orient your life around it. You make decisions based on the resurrection of Jesus. You live with a bounce in your step, a hope, because of that, uh, that belief that you have. Some of you are here this morning, and you would really like to believe. I mean, wouldn't that be great? Uh, you want to believe in the story, but you're kind of skeptical about it. You've got some doubts and questions. We're glad that you're here. Maybe you just don't believe at all. You find that whole thing just way too difficult uh, to accept, and you're welcome a- as well. Um, wherever you are, we're glad that you're here this morning. And to be honest with you, um, I mean, hey, this promise that Jesus made when he was alive, he promised his disciples, I'm going to be arrested I'm going to be put to death. I'll raise on the third day. That's, um, hey, that's a pretty unbelievable promise. In fact, that might be one of the most um, far-fetched promises that anyone has ever made. Um, So I can see how you would have trouble believing that. Uh, And then the idea that it actually happened, (laughs) that he made that promise, and then he made good on a promise to to raise from the dead on the third day. Yeah, that that is extraordinary, amazing story. Uh, and I can see why people would struggle with having some doubts about that. So if you've got some doubts, you're in good company. Um, the disciples, um, immediately after the resurrection of Jesus, they had questions, they had doubts. Um, they weren't sure what to make of it. They weren't sure that they actually believed in it. So you're in good company here this morning um, if that's where you're at. And I would remind all of us as we get started this morning of just an encouragement that the Bible gives us in Jude chapter 1 verse 22, it says, be merciful to those who doubt. Be merciful to those who doubt. I like that. When I was in college, I certainly went through, well, for me, I went through my, like, phase of greatest questioning and doubting. Didn't go to church real often. Uh, Wasn't sure that I believed in in the Bible. Wasn't sure that I believed, certainly, in the resurrection, uh, and, and didn't know whether I really believed in God or not. And and kind of, uh, I, I grew, I think, in my faith, and it kind of became my own, and I, I, I became more and more sure of that and deeper in a relationship with the Lord. Then I went to graduate school at OU, uh, the philosophy department at OU, where I was getting my Ph.D., and I was surrounded by friends and colleagues who were, who were pretty skeptical about a lot of the claims of Christianity, perhaps even beyond that, just real cynical about all of that stuff. Uh, but God loves us wherever we're at on that, on that continuum of belief or unbelief. He loves us. And, uh, and while I've come to a place personally of confidence in the gospel, um, I respect Christians and I respect non-Christians who have doubts and who have questions about the story. Once upon a time, 
there was a trial, a murder trial. And in this trial, the lead defense attorney was pretty sure that the deck was stacked against her client. I mean, there was pretty strong evidence that he did it. Okay? Um, the only thing that she had, and you're trying to get reasonable doubt, right? If you get reasonable doubt, you might get an acquittal. So the only reason she had to believe that she might get an acquittal from that jury on reasonable doubt was that they never found the body, okay? As much as the, the authorities had searched and searched, they just couldn't produce the body of the victim. So she thought maybe that will be enough to get reasonable doubt. Well, when it came time for closing statements, she could tell the jury just wasn't buying it. They were, they, it. You could just tell in their eyes, they were ready to convict her client. And so she threw this clever Hail Mary pass in her closing arguments. She stood before the jury, and she said, looking at her watch, within the next one minute, through those doors, at the back of the courtroom, the alleged victim will walk through very much alive. There were gasps in the courtroom. There was shock and amazement at that audacious claim. And then she stood there silent, looking at her watch and looking back at those doors. After a minute, nothing. Nobody came through those doors. And she, she turned to the jury and she said, I made that up about the, the victim walking through those doors. I made that up. But I looked back at those doors, and I noticed all of you on the jury looked back at those doors as well. That, I suggest, is enough for reasonable doubt. You're not even sure that the victim is dead. So I insist that you return a verdict of not guilty. The jury was kind of confused... And they eventually retired for their deliberations. And after only 15 minutes, the jury filed back into the courtroom and announced their verdict. Guilty. <laughs> the defense attorney, she said, I don't see how you could have possibly returned that that guilty verdict. I noticed all of you on the jury looking back at those doors when I said the victim was going to walk through there. And the foreman spoke up and said, yes, all of us looked back at those doors, but your client didn't. <laughs> yeah. So, so there are doubts, right? There are reasonable doubts, and then there are not reasonable doubts. Um, and I don't know which kind of doubts you have, um, but this morning we're going to talk through um, some doubts that the disciples had and maybe you have about the story and think about what we're going to do with those. In fact, I think on any issue of real importance, of real substance, um, we should have doubts. I think doubts and questions serve us well. I think they're helpful uh, to us. Certainly the um, poster child for doubt when it comes to Easter is this guy named Thomas. He even got the moniker Doubting Thomas. And I can, I'm convinced that um, Thomas 
could be or maybe should be the patron saint for my home state of Missouri. Missourians, we're known as being the show-me state. We need evidence, right? We need to be shown. Um, we're not just going to believe anything. We're not just going to be gullible. And Thomas was that kind of guy. He was skeptical. He wanted to be shown um, some proof that Jesus was actually alive. We'll talk more about him in a moment after we watch this video. Thomas recorded this story for us in John. So John writes in John chapter 20, starting in verse 20. Listen to this. Verse 24, rather. One of the disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, and place my hand into the wound on his side. Eight days later. Eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus. Jesus was standing among them. Peace be to you, he said. And he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. Then Jesus told him, You believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. So obviously Thomas, who was a doubter, who was a skeptic, became a believer. We see that in this story. So again, I think what we take away here is it's okay to doubt. It's okay to have questions. I mean, when Jesus finally comes to Thomas, alive, resurrected, does Jesus wag his finger in, in, in Thomas's face and say, I can't believe you. How dare you doubt? I mean, does he chew him out? Does he get in his grill and really tell Thomas? No, he doesn't. He acknowledges his doubts. He names his doubts. He says, that's okay. Here, put your hand right here. Feel this, this scar here. And here's where the spear ran through me. Touch that. Know that I'm here. Know that this is, is real. I don't know about you, but I am glad that the Bible tells us about the questions, tells us about the confusion, tells us about some of the doubts of the early disciples. I like that. I'm glad the Bible does that. Because it lets us know not only is it okay to have some doubts, but I think the Bible lets us know that doubts can be a good thing. Doubts can be helpful to us. They are not enemies of faith, but actually they can help our faith grow as we ask questions and as we explore. So let's talk for a couple of moments today about having room for doubt, or maybe better, some rooms for doubt uh, the first room for doubt, let's label this as being skepticism. This is, this is where Thomas was at, skepticism. A skeptic is someone who demands evidence to support claims before they accept them, okay? They need evidence. Um, it's good to be a skeptic, all right? We're in, as you know, no doubt, we are in a, 
a presidential election year, and it is good to be skeptical about some of the promises that candidates make, right? I mean, it's good to say, hey, I want to look at your track record. I want to make sure that what you're saying today matches up with what you were saying two months ago or a year ago. It's good to be skeptical about your politicians. It's good if you feel like, hey, the last couple of months my electric bill has been coming in pretty high. I'm not so sure, but what, there's some mistake being made by the electric company. It's good to be skeptical. It's good to ask questions. It's good to make phone calls. It's good to say, I'm not sure this adds up. Skepticism can be helpful in a lot of areas in life. It can help us grow. It can help us find answers. What's not so helpful is the next room for doubt, and that is cynicism. Cynicism. A cynic is predisposed to reject claims either before the evidence is heard or in spite of the evidence or in spite of partial evidence. Um, they're basically intentionally doubting what they hear. And you probably know some cynics. You may be a cynic. Um, that's okay. There are probably some reasons or experiences in your life that have brought you to that place of cynicism. Um, but cynicism goes beyond reasonable doubt. Cynicism is a choice to doubt in spite of the evidence. Here's just one example. Okay. According to the Old Testament... According to the Old Testament, God performed a bunch of miracles, right? When he was delivering his people from slavery in Egypt. Um, the plagues, remember those? Uh, the shock and awe campaign that got uh, Pharaoh to relent and release the Israelites. There was, of course, the, the opening of the Red Sea. Amazing stuff. And according to the biblical account, there was a group of Israelites who still wouldn't believe. They had seen all of this stuff. They'd experienced it firsthand, but they were just kind of, you know, arms crossed, like, eh, not so sure about all this God stuff in spite of all that I've seen. The Bible says in Numbers chapter 14, verse 11, records this, the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? Will they never believe me even after the miraculous signs that I have done among them. Basically, I have given them all the evidence they need and more, and they're still choosing not to believe me. Those are, those are cynics there. And while you may have your doubts about the Easter story, your questions, your concerns, while you may be a genuine skeptic, I would encourage you not to be a cynic not to close yourself off from the possibility that the Easter story is in fact true. Because if Jesus lived and died and was raised from death, you have hope there. You have salvation from your sins, and you can believe with reason that the grave will not be the end of your story. Now there's another room for doubt, and this may sound a little bit weird, but very much a part of faith is doubt, okay? So the third room for doubt this morning is faith. Because of evidence and experience, a disciple of Christ chooses to trust God even in the midst of their questions. So just because you're a person of faith doesn't mean you don't have any questions or all of your questions have been answered. And you may be thinking, hang on a second. 
I know what faith means. That's not right. Faith means you don't have any doubts. It means you just believe it all. No. Truth is, faith actually requires questions. The fact that you don't have all the answers, well, that's actually a precondition for faith. You don't have faith if you do have all the answers. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He says, now, right here in this life, right now, now we see things what? Imperfectly. Now we see things imperfectly as in a cloudy mirror. But then, in glory, in heaven, then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is what? Partial and incomplete. All that I know now, this is Paul here, all that I know now is partial and incomplete. But then I will know everything completely just as God knows me now completely. So check this out. As long as you have faith, you will have some questions. Those two go, to, go together quite naturally. So suppose I tell you this morning, I have a $5 bill in my pocket. How many of you believe that I have a $5 bill in my pocket? Okay. Got some believers. Brian Davis, you're a believer. That's good. That's good. You have faith that I have a $5 bill in my pocket. Unfortunately, I am now going to have to destroy your faith, Brian Davis. Destroy your faith because check this out. What is this? That's a $5 bill. That's a $5 bill. Now, they still have to have faith. They can't see all the way back there, but you are looking face-to-face with one President Abraham Lincoln on the $5 bill. Your faith has been destroyed. You don't have to have faith anymore. You know. You've got the answer. You've seen it. Here it is. It's a $5 bill. Um, And that's kind of what Paul is saying. He's saying, look, as long as we're here and our knowledge is partial and our knowledge is incomplete, we need faith. One day we're going to see God face to face and we won't need to have faith anymore because there he is. There he is. But in the here and now, we need faith. And if you're tempted to think, I can't become a Christian, I can't become a Christian because I have doubts, I'm still not sure about those questions and the answers to those. Here's the thing. As long as doubts exist, as long as a person is still uncertain, that is the only time faith is needed. That is the time you need faith. When the doubts are gone, when the questions have all evaporated, the person doesn't need faith anymore. Make sense? So faith and doubt go together, just like skepticism and doubt, just like cynicism and doubt. It's like the father who, I love this story. So in the ministry of Jesus, this father comes to Jesus one time. This father has heard all of these rumors, all this stuff about, hey, this rabbi from Nazareth, he's going around healing people. He's performing miracles. And this father had a son who was very sick, deathly ill. And so this father brings his son to Jesus. And he comes to Jesus and he says, Rabbi, if you are able, make my son well. 
And I love Jesus. He just says in Mark chapter 9, he says, If, if I'm able, anything is possible to those who believe. Now, what I love most about this story is what the Father replies in Mark 9, verse 24. Immediately, the father of the child cried out to Jesus and said, I believe! Help my unbelief. I've got this belief. I've got these doubts, too. They're coexisting within me. I have some faith. I got some questions. Um, theologian Frederick Buchner, who really has a way with words, um, he once said, Doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. <laughs> Doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. Look, questions, good questions, a search for truth. These are not harmful to faith. These are necessary for faith to exist. So here's the final thing I want to say about rooms for doubt this morning. When doubts have us searching, when doubts are keeping us on our toes, they serve us well. On the other hand, when my doubts lead me to a place where I can't say, this is what I believe in, this is what I'm going to stand on, when they lead me to that place, then my doubts are actually a cop-out. So let me finish with this. I just want to give you some reasons as we finish out our time this morning, some reasons that you should give, I think, that you should give or you can give Easter the benefit of the doubt this morning. Here's the first one. If the story of the resurrection was invented, okay, so either it really happened or somebody made it up somewhere along, or some group of people made it up somewhere along the line, so if the resurrection story was invented, if it is in fact a work of fiction, why would the gospel writers, just think about this, why would the gospel writers insert the initial doubts, questions, and confusion of the early disciples into their stories? Why would they add doubt as this element in the Easter story? In that moment in history, around the Easter story, in the days before and after the Easter story, you've got Peter, a leading, if not the leading apostle, denying he even knows Jesus. I don't even know that guy. Never met him. You've got Thomas, of course, saying, you guys say he, he's resurrected. I'm not going to believe it until I see it for myself. You've got the, the ladies, the very first witnesses of the resurrection, these women that go to the tomb to basically um, anoint the body and do some burial practices that were common in that day. They go to the tomb. Jesus isn't there. He's resurrected. And Mark, in chapter 16 of his gospel, is recording their initial reactions to the resurrection. He uses four words. Alarmed, trembling, bewildered, afraid. That is how, according to Mark, the very first witnesses of the empty tomb, how they responded to Easter. Alarmed, bewildered, trembling, afraid. For some of the disciples, the very first time they met the resurrected Jesus in the Gospels, they thought it was a ghost. Really, look that up. 
They see Jesus can't be the real Jesus. We know he died, so it's a ghost, I guess? I don't know. Is that real now? It's interesting. It's interesting. Because if the resurrection was, was made up, would the writers really have built all of this confusion and doubt and fear into the story? On the other hand, on the other hand, if a resurrection actually happened, wouldn't you expect to find some fear and some apprehension and some doubts? I mean, if someone actually raised from the dead, wouldn't you be a little skeptical at first? If you went to a funeral a week ago, and this week you see the deceased in line at Walmart, would you be a little I think you would be a little skeptical. Looks a lot like this. It can't be him, though. Know that. Maybe it's a ghost. I don't know. It, it can't be that. I mean, you would expect in a legitimate, for real resurrection story, you would expect to see some confusion. You would expect to see some skepticism. Um, the fact that the scriptures record all of this actually makes the story more authentic and more credible. Um, if the whole thing were, in fact, made up, that kind of stuff wouldn't have been added to the story, certainly wouldn't have made it to the publisher, okay? Um, here's another reason, I think, to give Easter the benefit of the doubt today. Um, look, we know historically, you don't even need the Bible for this, you can just go to history. We know historically that many, if not most, of the earliest disciples, they actually um, died because of their faith. They actually were willing to sacrifice their lives for this story, for the resurrection of Jesus. So consider this. If the story was invented, does it make sense? Does it make sense that those same people who contrived the story would then sacrifice their lives for that fiction? I mean, I'm just, just asking. Um, so it's another reason to give Easter the benefit of the doubt. In the earliest days of the Christian faith, the powers that be were committed to the destruction of Christianity. They wanted it wiped out. The Romans during certain periods actually made it a crime to be a professing Christian. You know, they, they fed Christians to the lions. They put believers to death if they would not disavow this story. You know, acknowledge Jesus really wasn't raised from the dead. Just, just say that and you're okay. But they wouldn't. And so they kept going to the to the electric chair of the Roman Empire, whether it was the lions or being turned into a human torch or whatever, to, to pay the ultimate price because of their belief that Easter was real. And instead of the empire extinguishing the Christian faith, destroying the church, you know, I know, the church experienced explosive numerical growth all over the Roman Empire, all over the ancient world. So, here's the question. How did a small movement, second question there on the outline, how did a small movement born in a backwater province of the empire whose leader was executed as a criminal, how did that faith become the dominant faith of the Roman Empire in just a few centuries? And here's the second question to that. 
would the resurrection of Jesus would the resurrection of Jesus help explain the phenomenal growth of Christianity? So that first question, wouldn't you expect to see some doubts, some questions, and some confusion among the early disciples if the resurrection actually happened? That second question, if the story was invented, does it make sense that those who contrived it would give their lives for that story? The third question, how did this small movement, leader executed as a criminal, how did that become the dominant faith of the Roman Empire? And the final question has to do with this. I can affirm to you, for me, personally, my story, Jesus has changed my life. He's changed my life. The resurrection of Christ has made me a better dad, a better husband, a better friend, a better person. That's my story. And millions of others testify that's their story too. So here's the final question. Are the millions who claim that their lives have been touched by the power of the resurrection deluded or lying? I mean, maybe they are. I'm not giving you an answer there. Maybe they are. But if all of those people, if all of us are wrong, then we are either deluded or we're just not being honest with you, telling you that we believe in this story, right? So is that what you think, that all of the people who claim the resurrection has changed their lives are deluded or lying? And I mean, yeah, maybe I'm a little crazy, maybe I'm a little off for believing this Jewish carpenter born to a peasant family in Israel, that he's the Messiah, that he's the Son of God, that he lived a perfect life, that he taught this ethic of love, that he gave his life for my sins on the cross, that he was raised three days later. Maybe I'm just wrong. And maybe I'm not. Maybe that's exactly what happened. One thing I can tell you truthfully from the bottom of my heart is the resurrection of Jesus has changed me and has changed my life. And so many others can say the same thing. So wherever you find yourself, again, on this range of you know, belief to unbelief, wherever you're at on that spectrum, all I'm asking you today is just not to close your heart and your mind to the possibility that the Easter story is real, that it happened. I hope you will give Jesus, I, will hope, you will give, I hope you will give his resurrection the benefit of the doubt. This morning, if you're ready to cross that line of faith, go public with your faith in Christ. Um, Yes, I believe in Jesus. I may still have my questions. I may still have my doubts, but I'm a believer. If you're willing to do that this morning, if you want to put on Jesus in baptism, which essentially baptism in water is a reenactment of the gospel story, Jesus died, Jesus was buried, Jesus was raised in baptism. The old man of sin dies, is buried with Jesus, sins are washed away, and you rise up to a new life. You basically reenact the gospel. If that's something you want to do today, we would love to help you with whatever your need, however you want to respond to the Lord as together we stand and together we celebrate Easter.